0: Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Canberra Spring, it's fantastic. Unless you've got allergies, sorry about that. Um, Welcome to the National Library of Australia. I'm Stuart Baines, Assistant Director of the Community Outreach uh, Outreach Branch. As we begin, I would like to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet. I pay my respects to their elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, past and present, for caring for this land we are now privileged to call our home. I grew up on the lands of the Awabakal people and was privileged to attend a primary school where they recognised and valued the First Nations people and exposed us to their culture. I have now lived and worked for many years on this land of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples and am proud to be a part of a national institution that plays a part in sharing the collections, cultures and languages of Indigenous Australians. It is my pleasure to welcome you all to the National Library today to mark the 250th anniversary of the birth of Alexander von Humboldt. Before the idea of this event came to us, my staff and I have had heard of Alexander von Humboldt in a very obscure way, but we couldn't have told you why um, or who he was. Perhaps many of you have that same response, perhaps not. I was certainly unaware of the valuable contribution he had made to science. As we researched further, we came to appreciate that von Humboldt was incredibly well known in the 19th century, even in Australia. As you'll see from several of the projected images this afternoon, von Humboldt's death was widely reported across Australia and even in the smallest of regional newspapers, demonstrating the regard in which he was held at the time by the general public. To tell us more about the life and work of Alexander von Humboldt, we are pleased to welcome Professor Gabrielle McMullen to the National Library. Professor McMullen is the former Deputy Chancellor of Academic Affairs at the Australian Catholic University. She is also a former Alexander von Humboldt Fellow and the current President of the Australia's Association for von Humboldt Fellows. Please join me in welcoming Professor Gabrielle McMullen.
1: Thank you, Stuart, and good afternoon to you all. Talking about Alexander von Humboldt in 15 minutes or so is quite challenging, but here we go. And as you perhaps have just picked up from Stuart, he was born 250 years ago today in Berlin. He was born into a well-to-do and well-connected family and with his older brother, Wilhelm, was educated by able and progressive tutors. Wilhelm is famous in his own right, He was an intellectual statesman and diplomat as well as founder of the Humboldt University in Berlin. As a child, Alexander was a collector of plants, insects, rocks, shells and the like, perhaps foreshadowing his future calling. Nevertheless, marked for high public office, at 18 years of age, he was enrolled at the University of Frankfurt Oder and studied government administration and political economics. One semester later, however, he transferred to the University of Göttingen, and here he spent two years focusing on sciences, mathematics, and languages. Significantly at Göttingen, Humboldt met Georg Forster, who had accompanied Captain Cook on his second voyage to the Pacific. As a child, Humboldt had read and been captivated by Cook's journals. Lively conversations with Forster intensified Humboldt's travel bug. Subsequently, he relished four months of journeying through the Netherlands, England, and France with Forster. While in England, Forster introduced Humboldt to Sir Joseph Banks. He had been the botanist on Cook's first voyage. This encounter led to a supportive scientific friendship between Banks and Humboldt. It's worthy of note that Forster was not only a prominent scientific traveler himself, but also a significant figure in the Enlightenment movement, and in both spheres he influenced the the younger Humboldt. Humboldt's intense curiosity, extraordinary memory, and passion for travel were developing as a powerful combination. For example, in 1790 he published a paper on the several types of basalt observed during a scientific excursion on the Rhine River. In this period he amassed a range of such experiences which would see him well qualified as a scientific traveller. He also developed his knowledge of commerce, languages, anatomy, astronomy, and the use of scientific instruments. Further, he undertook academic and practical studies at the renowned Mining Academy of Freiburg in Saxony. At the age of 22 years, Humboldt gained a government appointment as mining inspector, and this gave him some scope to travel. He excelled in the role of mining inspector, increasing gold production, inventing safety equipment, and for the miners improving their conditions, writing textbooks, and opening a free school at his own expense. His diligence and capacity saw him promoted and also entrusted with diplomatic missions. At the same time, he continued his scientific interests, undertaking plant research and dabbling in animal electricity. With his developing profile, he was introduced into the famous Weimar Intellectual Circle, which included Goethe and Schiller. Humboldt continued to travel, including undertaking a geological and botanical ex- expedition through Italy and Switzerland in 1795. The next year brought it life-changing development. This occurred following his mother's death, when he inherited the means to resource scientific travels and he resigned from the public service. Humboldt went to Paris, a major center of intellectual contemporary life. There he gained an invitation to join a five-year French voyage of exploration, and was greatly disappointed when war led to its cancellation. Having met the expedition's intended botanist, Amé Bonplante, the two decided to set out together in search of other options. Arriving in Madrid, they gained access to the King of Spain, who was open to Humboldt's proposal for a self-funded scientific expedition to Spanish America. Armed with the necessary authorizations and the best instrumentation of the day, Humboldt and Bonpland set sail in June 1799 and spent the next five years exploring the Americas. Their travels commenced in Venezuela, took them twice to Cuba, included an extensive period of exploration in the Andes and concluded with a visit to the United States. Their humboldt was received by President Thomas Jefferson. Humboldt's, Humboldt's com- exploration encompassed some 10,000 kilometers across Venezuela, Colombia, Ecuador, and Peru. A 6,000-meter climb in the Andes to just below the peak of what was then considered to be the highest mountain in the world. Collection of 45 crates of specimens, recording of brown-breaking data encompassing astronomy, biology, geology, meteorology and oceanography, some 4,000 pages of notes in travel diaries, and expenditure of one third of Humboldt's inheritance. The impacts of Humboldt's travels were profound, as well as the scientific knowledge distilled from the scientific data sources and applications thereof. His travels made available ethnographic studies into the ancient civilizations of Spanish America, social research on the Spanish colonies, mineral surveys, assessment of agricultural and mining production and their improvement, and improved maps. Jefferson would acknowledge Humboldt as the most scientific man of the age. In August 1804, Humboldt returned to Europe with one legacy of his expedition and international scientific reputation. He was a 19th century superstar. Another legacy were publications written for both scientific and wider audiences, the latter transporting readers into Humboldt's adventures. Ultimately 30 volumes disseminating his observations and their interpretation were published over the rest of his life consuming the remainder of his fortune. Thus, while Humboldt had been working from Paris, he needed to relocate to Berlin in 1827 in order to take a salaried post. On his return home, Humboldt missed the intellectual stimulation of Paris, but he did not rest on his laurels. He offered popular free public lectures, which were then immortalized in his last major work the five-volume Cosmos. He also furthered his interest in terrestrial magnetism, which led to a a chain of magnetic and meteorological stations across the globe, including one erected in Melbourne by his devotee, Professor Georg von Neumeyer. As exemplified by this initiative, Humboldt promoted free exchange of knowledge and his project was one of the earliest examples of international scientific collaboration. Humboldt continued to undertake travels in Europe, but only one other major expedition in his 60th year to Russia. He and his party traversed over 15,500 kilometers by coach in eight weeks. The journey's focus was to assess mining prospects for the Russian government. While travel was too rapid to be very profitable scientifically, Humboldt did gather some comparative data f- for his later works. Further, his observations corrected an exaggerated height estimate for the Central Asian plateau and predicted the discovery of diamonds in neural gold washings. This gifted man also had the ability to draw a talent which enabled him to generate visual records of his observations and illustrations for his publications. With maps and diagrams, Humboldt sought to present complex information in an accessible manner. His illustrations were enhanced by a significant contribution based on his observations of temperature, pressure, humidity, and flora and fauna against elevation. Thus, informed by his research into the geographical distribution of plants, he introduced the concept of isotherms, lines on a map connecting the points of same pressure. He similarly instituted isobars to connect points of the same pressure. Humboldt's studies into climatology included early works on atmospheric disturbances and recognition of comparable climate zones across continents and flora and fauna distributed accordingly, with the conclusion that nature was a global force. His his magnetic studies demonstrated the decrease in the Earth's magnetic field in moving from the poles to the equator. He also discovered that the Earth's magnetic equator was some 800 kilometers south of the geographic equator. Thus, Humboldt was a major impact on the evolution of a number of sciences, in particular, physical geography and meteorology. Key to this were his mastery of relevant contemporary instrumentation, his painstaking collection of wide-ranging data sets, and his studies of flora and fauna in situ. His insights led him to a recognition of the sciences' interconnection and to the promotion of a holistic view of the natural world, the unity of nature. His quantitative methodology is characterized as Humboldtian science. In line with his view of nature, Humboldt advocated for artistic travelers to present scientifically accurate nature painting. They were to be precise natural historians. His wide-ranging studies and integrated view of nature enabled this visionary thinker to develop an ecological understanding that recognized the interconnectedness of life on Earth. In 1800, he provided the first recorded description of human-induced climate change. In South America, he saw the impacts of colonization, namely deforestation for the introduction of agriculture, with consequent soil erosion and altered climate conditions. Linking social and economic factors with environmental factors, he highlighted the importance of forests to the ecosystem. Humboldt also spoke out against other social issues such as slavery and colonialism. Familiar with the repressive Prussian state, he sought to promote a more democratic society. During his life and ever since, honours have been bestowed on Alexander von Humboldt. European and foreign academies and learned societies elected him to membership. More species have been named after him than any other individual. He's also recognised in geographical and astronomical features and the names of places and institutions. Humboldt's travelogues inspired the youth of his day. Australian explorer Ludwig Leichhardt wrote that Humboldt was one of those men whose deeds sounded like legends to the boy, filled the youth with rapture and finally drew him to a similar direction. Young scientists looked up to Humboldt and sought to emulate him. Renowned Australian botanist Dr. Ferdinand von Muller stated Humboldt's works inspired me to contribute to the investigations of the realm of nature, drove me as well with endless longing to distant places. Similarly, the young Charles Darwin had read Humboldt's personal narrative. He indicated that without Humboldt's influence, he would not have undertaken his Beagle voyage or written on the origin of the species. Darwin described Humboldt as the greatest scientific traveller who ever lived. Through his publications, prolific correspondence, accessible lectures, and lively personality, Humboldt profoundly influenced the scientific community of his day. He also generously supported and mentored young colleagues. The Alexander von Humboldt Foundation, which similarly fosters young researchers, is thus aptly named in his honor. Humboldt died in Berlin in May 1859, his 90th year, and was honored with a state funeral. Innumerable tributes were paid to him, both in the new and old worlds. For example, in Melbourne, the German community held a dinner to honor him. With the passing of this great polymath came the end of a scientific era when you could hold all the world's knowledge in your head and to a time when science was hardening into specific disciplines. That phenomenon of specialization and increasing Anglo-Saxon dominance were reasons why Humboldt generally faded into obscurity outside Germany. A more significant cause was anti-German settlement sentiment arising especially from the two world wars. However, however, it was already evident in Australia in the 1880s when Germany was developing as a colonial power in our region and also evident during the Boer War. Thus, an event like today which reminds us of Humboldt's significance is of particular importance and I congratulate the National Library of Australia for this initiative. If Humboldt were with us today, I think he would have much to say about contemporary environmental and climatic issues. He would likely home in on the fires in the Amazon basin and in the engaging lecture style for which he was renowned, admonish us for failing to heed his environmental forewarning issued in 1800. Thank you.
0: Thank you, that's fascinating, fantastic. <clears throat> and what a visionary uh, man Alexander von Humboldt was. And bonus lesson on how to leave the public service. Great. <laughs> I'd now like to invite um, our panel to the stage. Um, so if you'd like to come up and take your seats, uh, we are streaming today's event, so it'll be live on our Facebook feed. So if there are things you missed today, you can go back, log into our Facebook page, and you can watch this event all over again. Um, so, today's facilitator is Lish Feyer, a presenter from the ABC Radio Canberra. Lish has a particular interest in science, having previously been both the science communicator at Questacon and host of ABC TV's Carbon Cops. Joining us on the panel today are Dr. Judith Reinhardt, Head of Science and Innovation with the Embassy of the Federal Republic of Germany in Australia. Emeritus Professor Hans Bucker of the Department of Quantum Physics at the Australian National University, and Professor Tim Entwistle, Director and Chief Executive of the Royal Botanic Gardens of Victoria. Please join me in welcoming our guests today.
2: Thank you, Stuart. Welcome, everyone. I did my own little pop quiz when I was asked to do this, and I asked everyone I knew if they had heard of Alexander von Humboldt. And it came back negative. No one had heard of him. And I thought, how did we get to this point? As I read about him, how did we get to this point that I've never heard of this amazing scientist? Can I just have a show of hands of who had heard of him and knew quite a lot about him? OK, we need to convert the crowd out there. Because <laughs> I
3: can,
2: uh, maybe my research methods are, are poor. <laughs> but, <laughs> so this adventurer, this polymath, this scientist, this self-funded man had so much to tell us and stored inside his brain. I thought, looking from a modern-day perspective, I thought he has, the, he has the influence of a Kardashian, really. He was so connected, so good on his networking. <laughs> he had the, the self-funding nature of Elon Musk and... So the funds to match his fabulous plans. He has the, the brains, I think, of Brian Cox, I think many more beyond, maybe Stephen Hawking, we can put that in, uh, and the communication skills of David Attenborough. So that, that superstar power that you spoke of really is very evident. So I want to know why he is the greatest scientist we've never heard of in <laughs> Australia. Uh, and I'm sure we'll uncover that today. But I wanted to start with our guests here to ask them what first engaged them in Humboldt's story, why they are sitting up here as experts of Alexander von Humboldt and and uh, share with us
4: your journey. Well, I'm happy to start. Um, I'm a scientist by training, so naturally I've... and German, so naturally I've heard of von Humboldt. But um, I think not so much his science, but what really fascinates me is his personality and what, how relevant many of the things he's done still are today. We already mentioned his networking skill. He was an amazing networker. I mean, if he had social media, he would be a social media superstar with way more followers than Kardashian. But he had his address book had the addresses, the contacts of 900 people and this was in the 19th century, so this is like linked in the 500 plus person. He knew everyone and he used his networking skills very well for his own personal interests. He was a smooth operator, he knew very well how to talk to kings and tsars and presidents everywhere, but he never trod on too many toes, a little bit with the conservatives, but he managed to keep his political opinions often also to himself so he could use his network for his interests which of course were science. But not only for himself and what I really love about him, his generosity towards the young, young people, towards the next generation, he used this network to advertise jobs, to promote people, to get them jobs at universities. He recommended Justus Liebig for a university position and Justus Liebig now is a university in Germany. So he did all of this and this generosity is really reflected in the Humboldt Foundation, the network and supporting the young people. And that is what Humboldt is for me.
2: Hans?
5: Well, for me, the beginning is quite different. I grew up in Germany and I liked his adventures. (laughs) So, you know, you could read about him, about the stories, how he did his trips and discoveries and you could just sort of see yourself exploring a new continent. That's from a German perspective. Uh, I think if I had been in Australia at the same time, I would have probably read about Australian explorers. So why would you read about Humboldt in South America if you have these amazing stories about Australian uh, explorers? and we all know about Cook and Banks and so the Anglo-Saxon connection is there. Um, the second phase was when I was invited to go back as an Australian at the time to Germany as a scientist. Why would they pick von Humboldt as the name for this beautiful science network? So then you would see that he was really the big connector as Judith has just said. And I think in addition to what you said Judith, he also acknowledged what he got from people. So. Um, When you look at his last book, Cosmos, it's all written by him, but that's after extensive uh, correspondence. So did he test an idea? Yes, he would write to the expert in the field, see what they meant, and integrate that in his work, and actually quote them as well. So this is a style of referencing other people, testing your ideas, Um, that made him great. Now, just to add to that, I brought the modern view of the world, right? We can do this now. This is obviously... (laughs) This is done by satellite photography. This is what the world looks like. You can play with it. And you see green parts, which are important. You see white parts, clouds, blue parts, oceans. So that's actually what we know now. Wouldn't have Humboldt loved to have an image. Mm -hmm. He tried to create that in our mind through his later works, The Cosmos, to actually show that this is all interconnected. From the tiniest little insect and plant to the whole way how the atmosphere works. And that's what I admire him now most, that he made that big transition to the whole thing. Do you mean in the. Send it around.
2: You can have a look, you can
5: examine. <laughs> I didn't to
2: cause it, to cause, to cause grief.
5: Hands <laughs> <we're> <laughs>
2: made, made me do it. <laughs>
5: Uh, We bring it back later. (laughs) And
2: isn't uh, uh, the whole world um, in his hands? And um, Tim, what got you started?
3: Well, I I come at it slightly differently probably. I don't have the German connection and I knew the name. I knew of him as a botanist, I'd heard of him. Um, But it was only in the the last few years, in fact, reading the the, uh, the book by um, Wolf, by Andrea Wolf, I got so excited, just it is a fantastic book and I will recommend you do buy it if you haven't. And I not only bought it in hard copy, I tend to read electronically these days, but I did one thing I've, I've not done for ages and ages, I scribbled all over it, I kept getting excited and <laughs> putting exclamation marks and, and I think what appealed to me was, as a personality, as a, per, you know, he's just a fascinating individual and a teacher and educator, Uh, but also he brought together all different parts of sciences, as we've heard about already, and I think it's very current. I think it's something that we're returning to today where we've become specialised. We're now looking with some of these big questions like climate change and bringing all the sciences together, and not only sciences but the cultural and art element to it as well. And working in a botanic garden where we I've been, uh, before I read the book we were looking at how we bring nature and science and culture together. We've got an observatory, we've got a a herbarium that has science, you'll see herbarium specimens behind me I think at times collected by Humboldt. And how do you bring all that together and then how do you engage people with that? And using art and using um, lectures and talks and getting people to think about things, I I read all that in that book and I got so excited that I I engaged with this person and then I must say before I came today I also spoke to uh, Professor Rod Holm who's an expert in Melbourne University who's written about him and his connection to Ferdinand von Mueller and Ferdinand von Mueller who we've heard about already was the first director of the Botanic Gardens and he was a huge fan. He was just besotted with him and in his first publication on Australian plants, he, he sort of had a little dedication or a little quote from Cosmos at the start of it and, and his whole sense of adventure came from Humboldt. He, he liked his theories, he wrote about his theories, but when he was really pushed, Mueller said, it's because it gives me that sense to go out and discover and, 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 and see, the, see the landscape and get out there amongst it.
2: Thank you, Tim. But it strikes me that it wasn't when he went on his journey. It wasn't hedonistic travel. He went there. He spent a lot of his inheritance, but not on the pursuit of hedonism. It was the pursuit of knowledge. It seems. And even that that previous slide that was the cross section of. The, the mountain climate oh,
6: yeah. in Ecuador. Now, that's
5: a very unusual slide. If you think yeah. about it, that that one, pe- thank you. Yeah, yeah. Pe- people <laughs> were looking at details, but they didn't make the connections. They didn't make the connection between one mountain range, let's say South America and North America and Europe, uh, and this idea of you know, plotting where the temperatures are similar, plotting where the pressure is similar. These were all new concepts. This is a different way of, of looking at big fractions, not just the detail. Um, I have no idea where he got that from, but he was amazingly systematic himself, himself. This yes. is what this is, a, is. Can yeah. we explain exactly. it? you say
2: where did yes. he get that from? He, this is original that thinking. Is, yeah. That
4: is one of his big legacies. He might not have made unique discoveries like evolution things like that, but his legacy really is this holistic thinking. Mm-hmm. And I think this is extremely relevant just now as you've already alluded to it. What we're looking at now is we have so much data out there, the big data science, what's called systems analysis for the scientists among you is where we're heading now. We're looking how everything fits together, especially also in the health and population health sector, not only your genetics but also your environment around you, all this comes together and we have new tools now Humboldt really just had his pen and paper and some instruments to measure things. Now we have the big computers doing all of that. But it's the same kind of science that Humboldt in a way started.
3: It's all, And I'd add it's also really well grounded. And the other thing I remember reading about Mueller's interest in, and he, one of the things that Mueller was doing that wasn't being done back in England at the time was looking at the plants in their natural habitat and examining them where they grew. The, the scientists back at Kew Gardens, were they, they store, got huge herbaria, they had these dried specimens, and you did all your taxonomy, your classification, based on the, those pressed specimens. And that's, why, that's what was very scientific and very guided by those. Whereas Muller got this idea from Humboldt that you needed to be out there and experience it. So I think it's not only bringing everything together, but it's also, we, we tend to, in science these days, get very focused yeah. on what we're looking at and our, our lines of evidence. But if we're working on a little chemical thing going on, to, to think about, well, where, where's that chemical sit? What plant, what animal is that in? Mm-hmm. And to take a step back and look at that connection, which uh, you know, I think he did wonderfully.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: And you... Oh, yes, Hans.
5: Yeah, just thinking, but he's different to the four people you mentioned, right? Yes, we have people who make big pictures. We had them at the time. But they might have been in a philosophical domain. They might have been in a religious domain. I think what is important, he had to go out there first, himself, to find the data, find the information. And everything goes back to the original observation, which is fundamental to what science mm. does. So uh, that's, I think, sensible. I mean, Banks did the same, but he didn't do the analysis, I think, later on, you no. might correct me. Um, other people fought big, but they didn't do the data sampling. And didn't make the point. He did it all. He did it all.
2: And the measurements he took, like to trudge up, reading his list of equipment that he took up (laughs) the mountain,
3: (laughs) (laughs) not single-handedly,
2: mind you. He had a few. Animals to help him and lots of of, uh, 12,000 horses. 12,000 horses. (laughs) So he had a bit of help. That's
4: over the whole expedition. Over the whole expedition. (laughs) (laughs) Not at the same time.
2: (laughs) And not all the way up to the top of the mountain. (laughs) So altitude, air pressure, refraction, electrical appearances, humidity, soil quality, and plenty of other scientific parameters that I. What is a a cyanometer? What is that measuring?
3: Something blue green, by the sky? <laughs> The blueness of the sky? The blueness blue. of the sky. He yeah. measured there the blueness go. of the
2: sky. Like, <laughs> this, there, there is big data.
5: Yeah, he didn't say it was hazy. He had numbers <laughs> yeah. for it, right? But that's the difference, right? You have numbers for it, rather than saying yeah. it was hazy, right? And, Which and is what you could learn from there.
3: He's often described as the first ecologist, and and, that's, and, and I think in a way that that mm. ecologist these days does observe not just the you know they're, they're taking all those measurements. And I know again I don't know on Mueller, but he, he I think he loved the idea that you go out with all that, with different instruments and pe- and probably. You can imagine kids these days, too, if you, you tell them you can go out with a, you know, a thermometer, this and this and this, that, that makes it really fun. Whereas if you just go out and stand there and look at it, well, you know, it's, it's actually a connection and taking the measurement. So I think it's the start of, I agree with Hans, it's about that, it's a scientific approach mm-hmm. and we, we don't always see that. And it was accumulating data, and I mean, and Darwin was very, very similar and very inspired by him in a sense of, you know, Darwin, before he did his theorising, accumulated huge masses of data and he was not willing to do anything in theory until he understood all the data or had the information.
2: And that's when you look at this sort of infographic here, the detail in the data he collected is immense, but you can look at it just as a fantastic picture, don't you think? Like Mm. from from someone who can just say, that is brilliant, a cross-section of a mountain, and I can explore and go with him on that journey up the mountain as he treks up and see what he discovers and what he measures. So I can delve into it and get lost in it as much as I want or take away just the big picture. So I guess from a communications perspective, he was incredible as well. And when you talk about how all his inspiration that he handed on, I g- but what there were, we learn, I guess, from the way he communicated to the, around the threats that we currently face, what he yes. communicated then and but, how we communicate now?
5: First of all, there were about 20 years. So he didn't immediately no. communicate. So these details came out very quickly, but that he kept on thinking, corresponding, refining, testing, and then 20 years later, he uh, roughly from memory, that was the first volume, and then another five years was the last volume. So, you know, maybe we should take a little bit more time and learn wow. from that as well, <laughs> and test our ideas, <laughs> yes. and, you know, so spend a whole lifetime on this process. What? Yes, yeah, that's, that's nice
4: to have. Yes, I know. <laughs> I think, I think, unfortunately, many of the scientists and younger scientists nowadays, They're under pressure. You just don't, they're under pressure. You need a job, you need to earn money.
5: And publication.
4: And he had a very big inheritance and even once he used it all up, he had a brother who put him mm. up and yeah. helped him along. But I think, yeah, the science communication is something crucial again Today, a lot of students, and this is a big thing, many of you might have heard about the three minute thesis competitions created here in Australia, now all around the world where young scientists and researchers are trained, how do I communicate my findings to the public? How do I get them excited about it? This and Humboldt did this perfectly, not only through his later Mm. lectures, but I even heard during one of his travels, while he was there, he bumped into an American journalist and he made damn sure that this journalist put a note about Humboldt and his travels in all the big, Uh, American newspapers and this is how the American presidents found out about him. So you promote yourself, you promote your science in all of this and I think an important part that comes out of it, people admired him, he was a superstar. People looked up to him and trusted his finding and his science and this is something we all struggle with right now. And I would hope we have someone like Humboldt, who reinvigorates the trust in science and scientists, also in some of our politicians, especially in climate science.
6: (laughs)
2: Your thoughts, Hans, (laughs) Tim? Mm.
4: (laughs) Ah, Can it be a single
5: Humboldt nowadays? Um, Mm. I fully agree with you, Judith. Uh, Times have changed a little bit, so we probably need more a community of people. But the trust to me is is the core feature. Uh, If we lose the trust in the quality of the information that is actually being used, then we can hardly communicate. So, to me, that's the the main feature. Will there be another Humboldt? Um, I think probably not, because we know so much more. That is a much more detailed uh, image. We need more instruments, but we can work towards that goal that he achieved at the time.
3: I think the, the other thing I picked up too is the, the it's the stories he tells, and and the communication is not just about having a good big theory, and it's about having the little and the fact that he spent you know five or six years actually travelling, being in the place means you can talk about it with mm-hmm. authenticity, and you can talk about the detail. And I, I remember reading that you know he counted count the number of flowers on a, a tree, and the forty-four thousand flowers or something. But funnily enough, I remember I. Not, I'm putting myself way down below Humboldt here, but I was out, out in the garden the other day, and I, was ca- and I was thinking, how many flowers are there? I came to a million <laughs> in the end. I didn't, I didn't count to a million, I must, yeah. must let you know. I broke it into little squares, and, I, and I, I think I was way, way off. But when I went back and I started talking to this to people in the tea room, the next half hour, everyone was talking about flowers and plants and how many, why would you have so many flowers? You know, why not just one big flower? It, it, it's kind of the... That's, that's what gets people thinking and I, I get that sense from him and the way he communicated that it was having that richness of detail, the, uh, having connected with it but also knowing the stories to tell. That's yeah.
4: I think if he had social media and Twitter in <laughs> particular he would have had, we would get lots and lots of tweets from him every day
3: it would be the Trump of today.
4: (laughs) (laughs) He'd be insightful, important tweets.
3: The the (laughs) anti-Trump.
5: Which might actually be few important messages than many
4: not so...
2: Did he have critics, talking of critics? Did he have critics, and and what were they critical?
4: I know only Um, one anecdote, that he talked a lot, and it was hard to get a word in. (laughs) (laughs) So, (laughs) that was...
3: I know Darwin, Darwin met him when he was older and he said he, you know, he spoke too fast, he talked a lot, and I don't think Darwin got a word yeah. in, and that... Yeah. Um, so it, the, un, the only other... I don't know if people criticise him for this. I know he gave taxonomists a bit of a hard time. or not, ta- not a hard time, but he was a bit dismissive of people who classified plants, and I know there's a, um, the, 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 there was a, probably a tendency from some people to think he was... And we get this today when you're a jack of all trades, mm-hmm. and, and I expect... Yes. There'd be, you know, some, some of those people and probably these, you know, these botanists sitting in queue would be thinking, oh, well, Humboldt's out there doing that, but we're actually going through our herbarium one by one and we're doing the proper work here. So I suspect that would be there. Yep. Yeah, it would have been probably
5: experts who would be most critical right. uh, because whenever you try to paint synthesis. a bigger picture to do a synthesis, some detail is sort of lost. I mean, that just has mm. to be like that. And um, you know there would be people saying, "Did you do that properly? Did you actually lose it in the right way, or did you distort it?" So there there would have been uh, scientific discussions, but critique of that nature is absolutely essential to science. I mean that's part of science. It's actually testing it. So did he have people who criticised him? Yeah, plenty. But there were other scientists, and something more solid emerged out of all of that.
2: And not the public and politicians, mm. as we yep. now see the inverse, don't we, rather than... Well, so there sometimes there's a lot of criticism around, this. Not, not criticisms per se, around the science, but questioning around...
5: Look, there was a lot of politics at the time, but well, we don't talk mm. about that at all, right? Mm. What happened in Russia, what happened in, in France, in yes. Germany, in Spain? You know, We heard a little bit about how complicated it was mm. for him to organise that expedition because he needed the letters from the... the king of Spain in those days because it was South America. Um, I don't know how well he got on with politicians at the time, maybe he just avoided them, I don't know.
4: He'd, no, he did interact and he was yeah. very progress- progressive and liberal, I mean, Gabriel um, mentioned yes. the fact that he was anti-slavery, et yes. And this did not exactly win him friends in certain conservative yes. circles. So there was conflict, but he was, a smooth enough diplomat, he was a trained diplomat, just like his brother was, to be able to navigate this and still have the support for his science. So.
3: He, he, uh, and Napoleon didn't like him, apparently. Yep. Yeah, and you know. he made some remark about, I, I wrote it down here, yeah. you, you, you were, when they first met, you are interested in botany. I know my wife, Josephine, is also occupied with it. <laughs>
7: <laughs> <laughs> and that, that was a... missive. <laughs> <laughs> Down. <laughs> he was
2: restless, like you describe how adventurous he was, Hans, and how that really drew you to him. Uh, there's a wonderful turn of phrase he uses. I think he felt like he was chased by ten thousand pigs. Uh, I suspect many scientists, <laughs> certainly those in climate change, scientists might feel the same sometimes to explain the urgency of the situation, that sort of rush to get everything done in the limited lifetime that he had. How, how do we take all that knowledge that he gleaned over the years and, and the processes that he put in place and put it into today's context?
3: Well, I think there's a couple of ways. Probably got hands and nails will have other thoughts, but it, one, I think you should see science as a bit of a progression, so, that, so each scientist fits into a bigger thought pattern, if you like, and the work he did on vegetation and and the classification of vegetation, that things have moved on since then and we now look at area, we have historical or analytical biogeography and we look at areas of what we call endemism, where where things grow and only grow and we compare those and we're looking at an evolutionary history which wasn't part of his thinking but his ideas of classification and looking at patterns which were being mentioned before around the world became the basis for some of these areas which then evolved and turned. So when I you know, read a, a history of the, that field just recently and it starts with Humboldt and then you sort of track it up through to today. So I think you see his ideas and his seeds and his thoughts as, as providing uh, inspiration but, al- but also the, some of the questions that people have then followed up on later.
5: Now, he did a lot of work not officially so much that you read in the sources, but they lived together with his brother Willem, uh, his brother, the diplomat, the statesman, the founder of the universities, they would have discussed these things in great detail. And so this vision of education as a pillar for the society, you go to university for education, you learn about a variety of fields, and this wasn't just job training, this wasn't just preparing for wherever you wanted to and however you wanted to earn your money. Um, that is still in, in the German education system, in some of the European education systems. So that's a, a contribution I think we can also can learn from now, is the value of a broad but factual knowledge beyond your immediate interest in dipping into other fields and learning some of the facts from other fields, Uh, That was very central to what he did, and it survived, and I think we can foster that and make it grow again.
4: Yeah, I I think I agree. I'm I'm glad you raised the Humboldt ideal or the the Humboldt model of education as it's known. You can all look it up in Wikipedia, which is mostly credited to his brother Wilhelm, Mm -hmm. but I'm sure he had a contribution really believed in educating the middle classes, because before then, education was, of course, only for the rich aristocratic classes. But the Humboldt brothers really believed in education and, like Hans Mm. mentioned, it should be a broad one and I do want to quote something which I find beautiful. They said that certain kinds of knowledge of a general nature, a certain cultivation of the mind and the character, that nobody can afford to be without. And they really mean nobody and this is this broad education and they said this must be achieved through schooling, through universities. Vocational skills can be acquired later on and a person is free to move from one occupation to another in life and they do so frequently. And this is something that I was fortunate enough to go to university in Germany where higher education is free. And I had a lot of time to not just study neuroscience and biology as I did, but took language classes, philosophy, etc. But this is the luck of the draw going to this university nowadays. If you're a student here and you have to pay, you go in there for your one degree and you make damn sure you get it in time because it costs you money and I find this quite sad. And you're so pressured to have a career and to finish your degree quickly so you can pay off your loans. We're creating very narrow young people. And I do not know what the solution to this is, but I do hope that Panels like this at the National Library of Australia can help people and hopefully some politicians rethink.
6: Because
4: when he returned,
2: we've spoken about, he came back with this whole idea around the interconnectedness of nature, and that's not new to us now, but back then, he was new, so new. He came back with this knowledge that also we have the power to destruct that and to really upset the balance quite easily and, of course, the first examples of human-induced climate change. How would he look at the situation we find ourselves in today and apply his lens or looking through his lens? I would would love
5: the instruments we have. (laughs) So, um, So from that point of view, I think he would revel in all the opportunities, you know, to make photos like that to actually reconstruct. Um, how would you think about forecasting? I think that's something he, he sort of couldn't really do. I mean, it wasn't advanced enough to be quantitative to say these are the trends. This is what we see for 10 years, for one generation, for uh, you know several generations. And we can do that now, and that's part of the big problem we have. is Is that a belief? Is that based on facts? What do we do about probability? The likelihood that this will happen? and how do we react? Um, I think he would have a fun time to get involved with the opportunities that technology would give him now. Probably do something holistic again, but based on much more detailed and widespread
3: information
5: from outer space, looking at Earth from within the Earth, I think he would be
3: right in the middle. But I, I think with the synthesis of ideas that we were mentioning before too, if you look at the way we approach, um, so I talk about biogeography, where plants and animals exist today and, and the history of how they got there. We now put layer upon layer and we get animal data and plant data together and we try and find patterns and we bring them together. There's a, and I, I think he would, he would welcome the, the sort of scientific rigor that's been added to that too. So we get the data, then we, we analyze it, and then we, if we do, you know, we're looking for a pattern and then we go and look for other organisms to do the same thing. So that, that richness of approach I, I imagine he would find it quite exciting, and, it, and it's taking some of his fundamental ideas and really stretching them further. When it comes to the way we treat the planet, um, it, it is interesting, it's always hard historically, isn't it, to, to put your mind to there and now, and again, I sort of reflect on, on Muller, who was, was coming after him, but and he um, he, he sort of read and, he made some very strong ecological statements as a director in, t- in terms of he saw destruction. Interestingly, he saw bush being lost in Australia. But on the other hand, he was head of the Acclimatisation Society and he let loose blackberries and all kinds of things. So there's, there's different <laughs> aspects to personality. But I, I think, but even then, Mueller felt that he was doing... He, he, that was Humboldtian to him, actually. I read somewhere that he, he, you can sort of see that almost this um, looking at the country as a whole, it should have, there should be fruits to pick and there should be songbirds and he was trying to create this, this country and, uh, and so in a way it was, again, that big big overarching uh, experiment. So it was his own way of interpreting it. So today we would look at it differently and we would be using some of the Humboldt ideas, I think, to, um, to, to make sense of where we are now.
4: I think he would have been quite frustrated today, because I know he was the restlessness where this driven curiosity and he went on and on and on. I would not have liked him as a supervisor, I tell you. (laughs) I mean, I I don't think you got much sleep. So, I think he was even frustrated then because the more he discovered, the more questions he had, the more he wanted to know. And luckily, he lived to nearly 90 years. He had a lot of time to do all of this, but still, he even he felt overwhelmed how much there was to know and to discover. And with all the new technology and the new data, and I think, I think he would have been frustrated that he can no longer do it all by himself. And be the one person who can do it all he would have really needed close collaborators from a variety of fields yeah, yeah
5: I mean it's yeah. I think he it was at the tradition clearly where it just got bigger more mm-hmm. detailed more available you couldn't do it with 900 entries into your personal diary you need the I Triple C and um, <laughs> you know and that's a very different bigger slower and, and, and complex system, but he would have I think he would have done well with his diplomacy in, in guiding, was, but he would yeah. have been frustrated yeah. he couldn't as do it himself yeah. as a scientist, yeah. Yeah.
2: Hans, I know you're interested in the way he analysed. So he, we, we see his fabulous adventures and we know for five years he really was an explorer. And he really put his body on the line, didn't he? He, he mm-hmm. self-experimented. Yeah, he, he, it,
4: When he climbed up the mountain, he was curious to find out at which stage he was going to fall unconscious.
5: <laughs> <So> keeping <laughs> records, I'm still here, I'm yeah. still here. <laughs>
1: and that's why
4: he didn't quite make it to the
2: top. <laughs> no. And he'd stay because just... Because there
4: was no oxygen right. mask. And
2: yeah. he had to yeah. stay... You yep. able to read his yep. instruments and get the record. And also the electric eels. I was reading a... Mm-hmm. G- can mm. you describe... Anyone know no, that? Can d- tell know us the story of the, story <laughs> of the electric
4: <laughs> eels? I don't like electric eels.
2: <laughs> yeah. I don't
4: like
1: electric eels. Well, they
5: do exist. Yeah. They're pretty powerful, so you get quite a shock. Mm-hmm. And, yes, he wanted to measure that. He didn't have the instrument yet. The magnetic measurements were very good, like the same thing you do for a compass. So I think... Um, you know that that probably drove him he knew about the magnetic field the compass and he was curious how that changed but the the electric one just came literally as a shock to him <laughs> 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 and they do exist and you know they're still quite a quite a force to reckon with when you encounter them so they, and, and they
3: zap you like a good electric fence and how
2: anymore. he managed to get an electric eel to di- to uh, mm. to yeah. look at
3: yeah well, exactly. And, but uh, the, uh, the, as you say, putting his life on line, and also the, the hardships of, of travel at that time, and, and the amount of data. And like, he, if you just look at the plant world, which you know is my kind of interest, I suppose, that he and Bombon uh, collected sixty thousand sheet specimens, you know, from their travels. And these are you've got to press each of those and, and look after them, bring them back. So even though it's interesting, uh, as someone who. Was observing everything. He did make sure he, you know, he was working with another botanist. But they got that material, took it back, and they're very meticulous in getting all the details. So it's not, it's not just swanning around, sort of waving your hand with a, an instrument and taking a measurement and going back to camp and saying day's done. Is a, a, a huge amount of work goes on.
2: And. That's where the
3: horses coming. That's right. All the boxes of yeah. 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 I know that's right. It was carried through the samples. <laughs> and Tim, you mentioned back.
2: him as the father of ecology, and he went on when he went to America and he met Jefferson, and then that whole movement around protecting the natural environment spawned from that with John Muir and mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. national parks. Can yeah. we explore that a bit? How then that that changed our thinking? on a big picture level of the environment.
5: Yeah, I think that was a transition to go from beauty of nature to an awareness how things are connected and, and other values. I mean, just the, you know, the earth as a, as a living body. I mean, uh, another word, he struggled, what should I call it? So he came up with cosmos, which we now use in a very different way. We think about cosmology is out there, not here. Um, Gaia was the other word. Yeah. Uh, John Lovelock, uh, of a philosophy that the earth is actually a living organism. And I think that started, um, you know, ideas like that led to Muir, to national parks, to preservation, that there's uh, something out there that is not just passive nature, beautiful things to look at, but a big living organism that needs um, support and protection. And we have that as an environmental movement uh, right across the world not always winning, but, you know, it's there and it's lively and it's probably our survival strategy. What
2: about his linking of humanities and science? That really
4: changed
2: the way... I think, they yeah, we, we often
4: forget during these five years in South America, you, of course, didn't only look at plants and animals and mountains. He, he also interacted a lot with the, uh, the, with the indigenous uh, populations there and he was again very progressive. In his diaries you can find a lot of anecdotes and notes. I remember one about mosquitoes. They were terribly bothered by mosquito bites and he was writing how some of the indigenous people slept buried in the sand up to the neck so they wouldn't get bitten and he was fascinated by that. And he was very progressive for that time. He perceived these indigenous cultures just as cultures different from his own but not more nor less mm-hmm. and he did observe how the indigenous cultures preserved and looked after the environment and this is where some of his ideas of environmental protection then also came from.
3: And I think and it does connect back to that, um, I don't know whether you call it, it's not so much spiritual but poetic and that, that connection with humans and, and culture that, that comes through in, in his approach, like even the visualisation and that diagram of the mountain and everything, he, he's, he's, he's re, it represents something scientific but also represents a beauty which you mentioned before. The art. The, art the drawing, of it. Yes, and, very talented. And yeah. that brings, uh, brings us in and, br- and gets the emotional hook and I think coming mm-hmm. back to him as a communicator, that's as important, so the data is there, then you've got to engage people and connect them somehow and he does that through that. And, and I think that has great relevance today. And a lot of scientists and a lot of science organisations are looking at, at art as a way of not so much explaining concepts, but bringing the concepts to people to sort of experience in some way, and he, he does that, and you know, that, that visualisation of the mountain is just a really evocative way of, of, of looking at what he's talking about.
2: I've spoken to several people whose initial uh, discovery of Humboldt was the maps and his illustrations, because they are so compelling. They're
6: mm-hmm.
2: you know, the original internet, you can just get lost in them for hours. Never emer- emerge much more knowledgeable, I suspect, than spending hours in the internet. I might open up the floor to to your questions now, because no doubt there are many. We do have a hearing loop in the room, so I might just get you to wait until the microphone comes to you before you start asking your question, because there, yeah, these are good, good, to ask now
3: Good afternoon. We, oh. is it on okay it's on um, I appreciate your distinction between the the specialists that were occurring even then and what von Humboldt did although he had to collect some of his own data um, in and in, in in the discussion about how he would react today the word frustration was used and I can appreciate what that meant um, today we have uh, increased specialization, subspecialization, pushing down, down, down into the detail. Um, the role of the synthesis uh, seems to be important there, as you mentioned. How do you think uh, we appreciate the role of the synthesis these days, um, where specialists tend to be more readily recognized?
5: Um, I think we do appreciate it. Because we have such specialization, I think what is happening is that you have to hand over your knowledge from one to the other. And mm-hmm. so you need mechanisms how to do that. You need, uh, and Lish mm-hmm. is a science communicator by training, right? And so we have, like, to, we have actually a profession of science communication <laughs> who then talk to scientists and the scientists there might be who synthesize, mm-hmm. who then talk to the experts. So and I, I think nowadays it's more about, again, the trust that we trust to hand over our knowledge to the next level up of generalization, that might be a negative word, but it's synthesis, and then up to communication. And we have you know, fantastic people at, at all out of that level, but as we both observed, Judith, it gets very competitive. So handing yes. over knowledge to someone else might be against what gets you the next promotion or job. Mm-hmm. So I think that is the tension I'm seeing. We have the, the method, but are we promoting it? Yeah, we should do so more on that.
4: Cooperation is vital nowadays even more so because you have all these specialists to work together to solve the big questions, but within cooperation there's always also competition.
3: Mm. I'd, I'd add to and I think Hanji mentioned this earlier, the courage when you're a generalist to uh, take those chances and to talk and make, make you know, a small mistakes sometimes to, gen- to make the general pattern, and I think that's... A really tricky thing to do at the moment. It has actually got harder to throw ideas out there, to have them float around, to, to test things out. So we are getting generalists come in, and, and we're doing that through things like climate change. But it, people are—it's—they're it, um, they're looking for the the faults and the gaps and the, and the the critical detail. Whereas you you need the the courage and the capacity to to. Smooth things over and generalise, and I think that's that's really hard. And in journalism and in um, and in science generally, to be allowed to explore new ideas is, I think, is getting tougher, and is actually a bit harder than it Well, is harder than it used to be. Thank you very much for your enlightened discussion today about a genius.
5: I wondered how accurate his measurements are, and representing as he does figures from pre-industrial times how much uh, information does he have in terms of comparing present-day global temperatures or the movement of species up and down mountains is that being used in any way by modern scientists today
3: yeah, well in, t- in terms of biological data uh it, it, it is i mean his observations his collections and and he's you know looking for links he'd see lichens growing at certain points in mountain sides and they're, Um, So there are two ways of looking at it, I suppose. Things have changed since then. So some of those plants, for example, are not there anymore. So we now have records of where they were and that's true probably of any collector of the time. But then his observations around groupings of plants and associations of plants, we've refined those. So I suppose the point I was making earlier is his ideas have then led to further development and and those ideas crystallising, so we have changed them slightly and in terms of going back to uh, but in the atmospheric and physical data I don't know. Hans, did you? Well,
5: I think people wouldn't doubt what he measured. And there's always uncertainty to every individual data point, so you have to be much more systematic. Fortunately, what we can do now is actually travel back in time in various ways to reconstruct let's say temperature fluctuations, sea level rises in in a multitude of ways. So not just for 200 years, so we have one data point from, from Humboldt, but we could, let's say, attempt a 1,000 years, or in some cases 10 or 100,000 years, in quite different ways that he couldn't envisage. So I think it's just that he started it, but his data points are so few that they don't really contribute that much anymore to our total understanding. We have much more to give you an image now, what it is now, what it was, and what is likely to happen in a decade or two.
7: Uh, This discussion obviously has a thread of anthropogenic climate change, and so I have a two-part question. Um, If you accept that the Earth's history has cycled through ice ages, what do you think has driven the climate For one ice station to start the next one, this is over millions of years. And the second part of that question is a test on your um, sort of um, the the breadth of your uh, reading. In all your reading, what have you read that might also cause climate change other than carbon dioxide?
4: (laughs) Can I answer the last one? I do not know too much about the climate science. I leave this to you. But other than carbon dioxide, one other molecule contributing it even more so is methane, and this is something. Okay. Well, then I leave it to the experts.
5: Um, so, how would you conclude that it is actually uh, human-driven? Um, the, f- the observation we have is what is happening now, what we can have recorded in the past, including the humans. Of years. Yeah, 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 I know, I know. But the, the interesting effect about what we are recording now is the short time span. Um, there are millions of years, there have been uh, periods of um, high temperatures, there have been much higher sea levels than we have. So, yes, we, we know all of that. What is worrying us as a community of people looking forward into the future is the timescales for which we cannot find any of the explanations apart from the concentration, which are no doubt much higher. There's no doubt about the concentration of CO2 and other climate gases. I don't think we need to go there. The question is what is their effect? And why is it happening on the time scale of one or two human generations? And none of the explanations we have, how this went up and down over tens or millions of years, fits. So I think to me and to the majority, vast majority of scientists, if you don't have any other explanation and all the models fit together, that is what you should be using.
7: we
2: we'll, well, we'll move on. Thank, thank you for your question. We'll move on to another question.
8: Hi. Thank you so much um, for your panel and for your talk earlier. It was very um, rich, and I'm, I'm just loving it. I trained as an ecologist at the ANU. I had the great pleasure of going to the Fenner School, and I really loved Humboldt's work. I referenced it really heavily in my own thesis. And I was just wondering, um, you know, we... And it's interesting that you mentioned sort of John Muir and that, that sort of movement that um, some say started in Scotland or the US or whatever you want to say about that. Um, I was just wondering what your thoughts are on the, the tension between the utility of the natural world as, as resources versus the, as, as you mentioned before, the like innate beauty of nature and, and what, what we can get from connecting with nature on, on a more sort of spiritual level. And if you, yeah, just wanted to make some comments on that because I find that tension very interesting. Thank you.
4: As, as a scientist, this is beautiful. I'm, I love birds and I enjoy uh, feeding my magpies and at the same time as a scientist enjoy watching them communicating with each other. So one for me doesn't exclude the other. I can enjoy the beauty of nature and the wattle's blooming and etc., and at the same time thinking there are a million flowers in there. So for me, that goes hand in
3: hand. I think, I mean, there's, there's also that other, I, I would agree with that. Most people in, uh, in science f- understand the beauty of what they're working with and they, they get drawn to it often by that initially. But also, and it, I know it's a little bit cliche, but you, as a scientist, the, the, by discovering and understanding and getting to that, that's how you explore and it becomes kind of a romantic relationship, I think, with the world where you, you're discovering bits about it and you fall in love with kind of these processes and things. And, it, it's, it, and scientists are you know, very dreamy people and, and that's, uh, <laughs> they're not, not presented that way a lot. Yeah. And I think Humboldt's a great yeah. example where you see the dreaminess come through. It might not no. be the right word, but let's 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 Romantic. use that one. Romantic. Um, but it, but it, that um, and and I do think though, when it, climate change is a good example where we can put the facts up and we can argue the case. But a lot of the time, it's about the heart, and it is. We we talk about this as scientists, and you can lay the facts out, and there's always and I said there's always dispute about particular elements, and that's fine. That's what science is is good at at resolving eventually but it's, mostly it's about getting the heart and, uh, and getting people to understand. And I find that in botanic gardens too, we strive to get the, the, the information across and the names and all that kind of thing, but mostly we change people's lives by just bringing them into a beautiful botanic garden and sitting under a tree where they might um, just sit and contemplate. Uh, we, we, we sneak some science in behind them while they're not looking, but, but really... <laughs> That, that can change their lives, and that environment does as much as the science. So I, I'm not discounting the science, but I think you, you've got to, as a scientist, be open to that other aspect.
5: And I think that trying to compare again, you, you mentioned the word utility. We need plants and animals for food, and locally that was always well understood in my backyard. Um, with the population we have now, we're talking about food security, global food security. And that's just one case where we see that this interconnectedness, which he observed, but he didn't write about global climate change. I mean, he he just noticed Mm -hmm. that what people did affected locally, what nature did. So he observed deforestation locally and what that might have to do with, you would say probably more the weather and the condition locally, rather globally. But, with the big dominant species, human, um, we now look at interconnectedness across the world. And when we discuss food security, we're discussing how one continent can feed another continent, how people on one side of the earth can utilize it. Australia, the the topic is water as much as food. Um, So, we have maneuvered ourselves into a space where, yes, we need to have all the aspects, the beauty, the emotions, and the utility in the sense of how do we make that work with so much population.
1: Thank you. I wonder if I can, sorry, I wonder if I can add some collateral to the argument. Maybe this is a comment rather than a question. There's a book by David Epstein called Range which is in praise of generalists and attracts a series of generalists who in due course focus on different problems. And Epstein found that these people were generally more innovative than the specialists, and were better at seeing fresh solutions and delivering fresh ideas. Uh, and of course, he, like you, uh, is strongly against the idea of over-compartmentalization, certainly as far as creativity goes. And it's fascinating to think, if we were ever to encounter aliens, whether it would be the specialists or the generalists who first made progress in understanding them and describing them to everybody else. <laughs> <Frank>. <laughs> <laughs>
4: thank you. Uh,
7: hello, thank you for your uh, both the address and the comments of the panel. And I'd like to comment first on the introduction that there are so few people who know today who Humboldt was. Some 60 odd years ago at high school in New Zealand, we were doing, uh, among other things, uh, climate, oceans, and so on. Now, and a case study was this bloke, Humboldt, noticed and, and um, did some observations on the fact that off the coast of Peru, the sea was a lower temperature mm-hmm. than along the coast uh, north uh, or south. But, and he didn't know what it meant. He published the, the information. And later, much later, the, this amazing current was discovered that goes up the South American coast over and is the basis today of El Niño. Oh, we know it has El Niño and La Niña.
5: Mm-hmm.
7: And that also, it has uh, immense, uh, that, that current, which is known today as the Humboldt Current, mm. uh, tells you something about the evolution of, of discovery, science, and so on. It may not be as direct as I think has been questioned already about Humboldt. So uh, that uh, whether today in high school people uh, learn about Humboldt, I don't know. But um, I remember it in some detail from that. So thank you.
2: Thank you. We've got to bring him back. Let me tell you, <laughs> I'm going to start a campaign. Gonna <laughs> yeah. know him as much as we know Cook. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Maybe a few banks, banks and yep. all yeah and all our great But it, it's
3: it's interesting just while we get the next question. Is I think the um, these characters do sort of pass through our education systems and there are fashions and there we talked about the war and, and reasons for you know, the Germans perhaps not being um, say, uh, talked about so strongly and in uh, Melbourne, in about the 1850s, there were, I think, three of the five institu- institutions, scientific institutions, were headed by Germans, of German people of German origin, and there were others who were leading societies, and it was a very, very strong culture in Melbourne. Yet, we... I need, again, I didn't learn that at school. I sort of picked that up later as well, and it's just interesting, the things that we block out, and the things we remember and, and get told in education, for various social and other reasons.
6: Mm. Oh, thank you very much. Is that all? OK. Um, I'd just like to make a comment as well, following on from the beauty of nature and <laughs> the connection of Australia and El Nino, and that is that um, people may not be aware that the uh, artist Eugene von Gerhard was a great discipl- a di- disciple of von Humboldt, and his painting reflected um, the ideas of von Humboldt in recording the minute detail of nature. And if you see any of his, of von Gerard's paintings, you'll see that they are almost photorealistic in the amount of detail they have. But further to that, um, it's because of that amount of detail, some um, botanists and ecologists have discovered that where land in Australia has been degraded, if there was a sketch or a painting by von Humboldt, they were able to identify the plant life and to regenerate from the paintings, so um, there's a so there's a wonderful connection with Australia, including um, the range of paintings um, that we have both here and point. in Melbourne. Yes, that's
3: yes. a really good point, and and it's one we yeah. should have made too. That the observations of that detail I came back. To the question from the back before too, the that detail does become important, and in Australia, you'll often you you you'll see too trying to look at vegetation um, before. Cook and before settlement, before European settlement here, and there are very few. It's very hard. There's, uh, scientists are trying to work out, how, you know, what, fire, what impact fire had, what impact uh, Indigenous people living on land for 60,000 years, how that all interacted, and the observa- Banks' observations are hopeless. If you read his diaries, it's, it's, it's this green tree on the edge of it, you know, there, <laughs> and there's a bit of grass, and you try and you, you're looking at every word trying to get some cla- some bit of science out of it. Whereas you get, a, you get someone like Humboldt who's drawing and, br- and putting detail, that sort of information, and, and that's more... I'm not putting Banks down as a scientist necessarily, he had other things on his mind, but he was... Um, <laughs> it was really that, that detail and registering that that made him a very good scientist as well. So we've talked about the, the art and the emotion and the romance, but that they're behind it, like Darwin, there has to be the detail and the science.
9: Hello. I too have enjoyed your presentation and uh, the questions uh, as, as well. I have the honour of giving a presentation of my own about Humboldt uh, to the Friends of the Australian National Botanic Gardens at 12:30 uh, on uh, the. Uh, 26th of uh, September. um. (laughs) 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 Very good. That's very Humboldt. Humboldt. I Uh, (laughs) I come to Humboldt (laughs) as a a generalist from a a different kind of uh, background, a social scientist, but I have an interest in cacti and succulents. And having been in Berlin and seen at the time that they were uh, starting to uh, prepare the the rebuilt Humboldt Palace, which was going to be the Humboldt uh, Forum. Mm. And seeing up the top of a viewing platform the the map that showed his uh, voyages in Central America, thinking if he's been there he must have seen a cactus. And yes, I'm I'm right. Uh, but uh, um, you've uh, you've brought together all sorts of things. The, the lovely comment here about the uh, um, the art informing the uh, the details of the the botany has been uh, um, ec- exceptional. I've also been delighted to find out about so many things that are happening at the moment worldwide about Humboldt. Uh, Germany is really buzzing with uh, events right now. They hope to open the, the Humboldt Forum uh, this weekend, but things like construction delays and provenance problems and uh, um, colonial restitution have all uh, uh, read their uh, ugly, uh, ugly heads. But. Perhaps at the moment it's because of the the climate change uh, interest. There have always been celebrations. We've seen uh, details of them on the screen uh, behind you. There have been postage stamps. There have been banknotes that have come out every 50 or 100 years uh, since he was uh, born. Um, sculptors have had a field day for years, uh, uh, putting together uh, um, uh, sculptures of him. It's an exciting time and it's wonderful because it informs so much of what's going to be happening in, in the future with science and also the many related disciplines that Humboldt also rec- uh, recognised were important to look at as well. Thank you. I think that might wrap up, almost wrap up this,
2: uh, this, this session, but it's only the beginning. Really, the, oh, oh, you, you can read the five volumes of Cosmos,
6: mm. uh, sink your teeth into
2: that, be uh, utterly fearless utterly, yeah, and, and endlessly curious. I think that's what I take away from him, is just to keep asking questions, little ones, big ones, whatever ones. It take, and down whatever wormhole it takes you. That's what I got from my, my adventures in Humboldt land.
3: Can, can, can I add a little <laughs> quick... No, we're all going to have one, aren't we? But he he described his coffee as concentrated sunshine and for someone from Melbourne that's really a a lovely (laughs) example.
4: (laughs) (laughs) I would just like to close by really thanking the National Library of Australia for putting on this event on behalf of the German embassy. Thank you very much. Humboldt was a great German. I would like to thank you all for your interest and I would in particular like to thank one person in the audience sitting here in the front row, Mary Ann, who made it all happen. I got a phone call out of the blue a couple of months ago. I am Mary Ann, I love Humboldt. We have to do something. (laughs)
0: Thank you, everyone, for coming along. You are not the only one who got a phone call-slash-visit from Mary Ann. So don't thank the National Library. Thank Mary Ann. She came with book in hand, passion in heart, um, and fire in belly, and said, do you know who this handsome gentleman is? And I had no idea, and here we are today. So thank you again, Mary Ann. Can we all please uh, thank once again all of our special guests, Professor Gabrielle McMullen, Dr Judith Reinhardt, Emeritus Professor Hans Bucker, Professor Tim Entwistle, and of course, Lich This may surprise you but if you'd like to read more about the life and work of Alex Alexander von Humboldt, the National Library's bookshop has stock. What a shock. Um, several of his books, um, details uh, of his achievement, achievements and further, so if you would like to buy one of those books, um, 10% off those books today for you as our audience, and please be aware all sales from the National Library bookshop actually help the National Library, So. Um, Yeah, great, pay me, that would be fantastic. (laughs) Um, Thank you all for attending uh, this event and we hope to see you again soon. And thank you for all of our online visitors as well and hopefully people back in Germany watching today's event. Thank you.